sort of berated him into getting back together that night. You know, I knew how to say the right things and, you know, hit him in his soft spots. And he sort of reluctantly agreed that, yeah, we'll give it another shot. And literally within minutes, um, he had what amounted to a phone intervention from the Eagles, from the guys in the Eagles, who started calling that night minutes after we had officially gotten back together and by the way there's a pile of coke on the coffee table as high as Mount Everest and uh, Joe's on the phone and it, off the phone and he's getting madder and madder and hanging up and it's somebody else it's, it's one eagle after another and then the, their manager calling and finally I'm like why what who's calling and why are you so upset and he goes they're getting the eagles back together but only if I go to rehab and he was furious and I was laughing because I, I I thought this was gonna be our big night. We were gonna make love on that, whatever, and now he's packing to go to rehab. I was oh. very mad. A little up, up, I was a little frustrated with the Eagles. I thought their timing was off. But you know, I was kinda happy. I said, You're gonna go, right? And he he needed the money and um, he's like, Yeah, I'm not an idiot. But, but then he said, when, when that tour is over, I'm going to go to rehab and then I'm going to go on tour with the Eagles. And when it's over, you and I are going to have the biggest party this town's ever seen. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here. In this very special episode of Full Potential Now, Ted chats with intimacy coach Kristen Casey, who's here to talk with us about her rock and roll addiction memoir, Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh. Join us as Kristen tells all about her journey from life in the fast lane to sobriety and redemption. You do not want to miss this. What is the backstory to a perceived groupie of a rock star? From the outside, they may just be perceived as a groupie, out to hook up with the famous rock star, live their lifestyle and enjoy their riches. But could there actually be more to this story? We always seem to know so much about the rock star life, where they might have grew up, how they became a rock star, their family, and all their rock star stories. It seems as if the so-called groupie or girlfriends are just an add-on to their lives. But what if our perceptions were a bit off and that a groupie or a person had a previous life, maybe a family life, a school life, and a career life? What if their stop as a girlfriend of the rock star was merely a blip on their own screen? Or better yet, what if they never were interested in being the girlfriend of a rock star from the beginning and got sucked into the rock star life given a random meetup set up by a friend? Would they be perceived differently Maybe they wouldn't be so much a groupie as a person, as a human being, similar to the rock star and similar to all of us. Or even better yet, maybe it was just about love. Well, I am with the absolutely amazing Kristen Casey, uh, also known as KC. And she has blessed us with her time today, and she has lived quite, I would say, the rock star wife, girlfriend life, for sure. She definitely has a, an amazing story of recovery, and uh, 
she'll probably talk a lot about her life with Joel Walsh and how that went. And uh, so we want to welcome you to the show. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, I'm honored to have you on. I'm a, you know, I, I'm an Eagles fan myself. So like when you reached out and, you know, kind of thought of this idea to have you on the podcast, um, it was very intriguing. And uh, I actually have the rock the Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh book, which I think is coming out, or is it out? So the book came out two years ago, but the paperback, um, it, there was a bit of a delay, so because of the pandemic and everything, but it's kind of, it's coming out in one month. So I'm doing a bunch more book promotion right now. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, just going to read the cover here. Mark Elliott, New York Times bestselling author of To the Limit, The Unstold told story of the Eagles, no vantage point is better than the one on the inside. Kristen Casey was on the front lines of, of uh, rock's most decadent eras. And I've actually, believe it or not, I try to read all the books of my guests. And to be honest with you, I get through maybe a hundred pages or so. I started reading this book. You sent it to me in the mail. I started, I opened it up, I think on Friday night. Um, and I'll be, I was shocked. I'm on page 294. This is a record for Ted of reading <laughs> guest books. Um, I really love the flow of this, of your writing. Um, I can't say I'm, I'm more of a self-help development junkie. So I read all these like factual books and all this sort of stuff. So my kids are always like, Ted, why don't you ever read just like biographies and the regular stuff other people read? And I always tell them, I'm like, yeah, I'll, yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll get to that. I never get to it. Lo and behold, the book comes in the mail. I open it up. I'm anticipating I'm going to read about five or 10 pages, 20 maybe. I, I stayed up for two hours reading this. Your writing style, it's like it's like I'm there with you. So I was actually quite blown away with how well this book is written and blown away about your life. Um, just to, I think you tell it in a really amazing way. So um, I can't say many books have hooked me, but I would definitely say this book has. I'm just blown away. I'm so bowled over by that. It is the greatest compliment in the world to me personally that um, to hear that my writing flows and that somebody can't put my book down thank you so much you've just made my year um, and I uh, you know I knew I knew I had an interesting story just because um, well my relationship with Joe was really nuts but the whole addiction and recovery I just think um, I'm always fascinated by those stories I read a ton of memoir and biography I, I, I don't read any fiction but I read memoir and biography, and then like you, like I'm kind of a self-help junkie or I, all kinds of psychology and anthropology and all that. And when I sat down to write this book, um, you know, I had a lot of short pieces published, even short stories that I'd written about um, that ended up in the book that I wrote about myself and Joe because um, they were very impactful um, events, and it was an impactful time in my life. But, you know, when you sit down to write a book, it's a different animal, and I, I had wanted to be a writer since I was 11 I thought, I thought I wanted to be a writer at 11 and at 13, I knew it. And so, um, how many years later, 35 years later or something, I sat down to write my first book and my hope was, 
not just that people would be engaged with the story and find something of substance there, but that I would really step up as a writer because it's, you know, it's, I feel like it's one of the, it's one of the ways I stay sober, to be honest, is that I feel like it's my purpose to, to, um, communicate through writing. And, um, so to know that I've, that I can capture someone's interest, not just with my story, but with the quality of my writing, that's just everything to me. Thank you. Well, awesome. You are welcome. And there's definitely no shortage of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in this book, that's for sure. <laughs> but I, I almost feel like I'm feeling this vibe. Like, I want to start out, you know, we have these canned questions we always ask, but I almost feel like having read the book, I mean, you have that 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 meeting with Joe up in the apartment. I think it's the, the bass player and, and yeah. it's the sort of the first lane on of eyes and, and the vibe and all that. But I almost want to go a little bit earlier. I'm going to know maybe if you could tell the story, but maybe start out when you were younger and maybe how that eventually kind of shaped you to, let's say, what, are, what were you, 18 at the time when you met him or 19 or something? I was, I was close. I was 20. Okay. Um, and it's up in this, right? Your girlfriend invites you over to the to meet this guy. Is that right? It's like almost yeah. like a double date kind of thing? or yeah. Just, yeah, my a, a girl that I worked with, a really good friend of mine, Vicky, was dating his bass player. You know, it was a casual thing. He was always on the road, and she was like his Austin girl. I mean, she would travel to see him on the road, and I knew she was seeing this this musician. But yeah, I didn't. The name didn't ring a bell. She didn't say the Eagle. She just said this guy Joe, Joe Walsh, whatever. I'm 20. I didn't really know. I didn't know the name. I didn't think a lot of it. And then one night they're in town for a gig and she says, oh, so the singer is like recently single. I really would like, well, she just asked for a ride to the hotel. And then on the way she tells me she wants, you know, I find out it's kind of a fix up. So it was, yeah, that's how it happened. That's how I ended up meeting him. Um, uh, and I still didn't know who he was. As I was falling in love with him within about the first 20 minutes, I found out, I figured out who he was and he was a rock star the next day when I went to his concert. So I was already in love that's probably the best way to have you had an open mindset you know what i'm saying an open view of you know you're not like totally thinking like oh, i'm gonna meet a rock star so you probably like your natural self it's almost better yeah it's almost better off going that route than knowing ahead of time I'm, i've always been glad that it happened that way to be honest yeah because i i just saw him as some guy who um, might be interesting because he he was a musician. I thought he was like a one-hit wonder, maybe, from the 70s that I'd never heard of. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so I just remember that Sally, like, he was just some guy I was meeting that I could have met anywhere in Austin in a bar, you know? But, yeah. Could there be any possibility that maybe our relationship could be similar to Casey and Joe Walsh's relationship? I might just write it off as unrelatable. I mean, he was a rock star and she was a stripper. But let's take that away for one second and imagine that maybe they were just two people who met, fell in love, but unfortunately both got addicted and battled addiction in their own ways and found their own pathways out. Maybe most couples are not all rock stars and strippers, but some couples do struggle with addiction. How does that play itself out over time and how did they shift their identities from an alcohol or drug addict to a sober musician and maybe even a book writer? The bigger question here is how do we shift our identity over time? We might think we are destined to always be like this or like that, 
but later in life discover we have so many other possibilities and who we might want to become in our lifetime. And maybe the even bigger question is what holds us back? Obviously, we always see addiction as holding people back, but even in sobriety, there can be things that still hold people back. Our fears, uncertainty, maybe the toxic relationships we get in, maybe our own self-esteem and insecurities. What if this story in our story is maybe about just trying to discover who we truly are and who we truly can become? grow up and kind of like just a brief history of, of kind of like your childhood that kind of sets us up for like the age of 20 when you actually meet them. So I think there's obviously people love to hear um, about the sex, drugs and rock and roll for sure. I mean, obviously, that's always the draw, but I, like it's not so much that for me. I mean, that that's obviously a big part of the whole story with Joe and, and you and that sort of thing. But there's a love you're searching for love along the way. Right. It, I don't know if I'm interpreting it wrong, but it seems like there was this vibe. But then there's this I, I feel like there's your your pre Joe days where I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, well, thanks for asking, because honestly, I feel like my, my story is not complete without that. The, the the person I was when I met Joe and was in that relationship and did, you know, I won't say everything wrong, but so many things wrong and ended up in this horrible, really intense spiral of addiction and and uh, eventually, you know, uh, suicide attempt. Um, the person that I was for the first 20 years led to that, you know, I mean, for me personally, my addictions, what set me up for that were, you know, adverse childhood experiences, if you want to use the clinical term. But um, one of the reasons I even wrote the book was because from the outside, anyone looking at my family and me specifically would have thought and did think, you know, how does a girl like that end up over here off the deep end she's had every advantage she has what seems like a loving normal family um and you know in, in a lot of ways i did have a bit a, a very loving family they it, i didn't feel loved um and it didn't feel normal from the inside it felt very dysfunctional i didn't have that word as a child you know um but a lot of normal happy families with you know are, are not that normal or happy on the inside so um you know, my parents are great people. I want to start off by saying that. I, I love them very much. And they're really wonderful people. And some of their parenting was just off the charts stellar. Like, they did some things better than anyone I can think of. But, you know, they were from a different generation. My dad worked a lot. When he was home, he, he made me feel cherished and loved and treasured. And that um, has probably set me up for having a really good relationship to the male gender in general. Like, I've, um, I've always had for the most part, really good experiences with, with men, except in the depths of my addiction. My mother and I had a harder time of it. She um, was under tremendous stress, had a lot of kids at a very young age and a very high-stress job and and uh, was not from a generation where, you know, asking for help or even getting therapy, you know, and she was depressed. I mean, I think it runs in my family. Suicide, alcoholism, depression all runs on my mother's side of the family, and I think... Um, she did the best she could, but when I came along, unlike my, my older siblings, um, 
who are very, very sweet. And sort of my brother's sort of stoic. My, my older sister is as sweet as can be. And then I came out kind of, you know, kicking and screaming. And um, so, and then my younger siblings also, they're, you know, just, um, I had the, I had the temperament that triggered my mother <laughs> and, you know, I think that I was so opposite from her because she was a child of the fifties and conformity kept you safe. And, you know, you wanted to fit in and not stand out. And I was someone who was rebellious and I stood out and I was quirky. And as I got older, I was, you know, kind of a sexual person. Um, and, you know, in the Catholic tribe that we were from that was just really frowned on so so I experienced a lot of criticism about who I was and I think it was my mother trying to make me the person she thought would be safe in the world and what really happened was I grew up not not having much self-esteem not feeling supported not feeling like I belonged I had no tribe and in order to protect myself from what felt like hyper a lot of hyper criticism and some emotional abuse. I developed this skill of sort of tuning her out in a way where, you know, she'd be just sort of berating me and I would just slip into this weird little spaceship in my head and just block all emotions. And what I believe is that when you do that, when you put up a wall to block those emotions of pain and shame and hurt and fear and um, that you also block your ability feel, to feel joy and excitement and love and connection. And so when I had my first drink at 14, um, it was given to me by a really cute doctor I was babysitting for. I had one shot of tequila and immediately at 14 for the first time in my life felt like I belonged, like I was interesting and cute and I could have a conversation with this you know, attractive man. And I thought I had, I, I suddenly understood how the rest of the world felt, how they were able to socialize and make friends all in that one tequila shot. And then um, <clears throat> my last thought is I, he drove me home. And my last thought as I went to bed was how do I get more of this stuff? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so that really, it became my answer to life to um, every high school dance. Every time I even talked to a boy on the phone, I made sure to, have some rum that I'd stolen from some someone I'd been babysitting for, you know, a little. So I was drinking as a crutch to um, connect and feel confident from the age of 14 on. And then at the age of 15, there was a, some financial trouble and uh, we were uprooted from, we had a lovely home in San Diego um, and I just started making friends and just started feeling like I had this sort of click that I might belong in. It was a punk rock click, but still, you know, they were, I felt like I might have my first tribe. And I was yanked away from that just sort of instantly and moved to a very different type of place in the panhandle of Texas. It was a very small town. And at this point, you know, I'm really funky looking with my spiky hair. And I was like the first punk rock chick in all of Amarillo, Texas. And so the whole school was just immediately on alert. And there were rumors that I was a witch. And so I went from just starting to kind of develop an identity and have friends to being the biggest outcast in the whole city. <laughs> and I coped with that by drinking. I became a, a big time binge drinker. At, um, I was 15, 16 by then. So were you able to make friends then and get a tribe in Texas? I was, I, 
I was so lucky in that there was one other punk rock kid there, and he, he was a popular boy, popular with the teachers, with the students. He was a very smart kid, very outgoing. And he had gone away that summer. He lived there for a long time, gone away that summer, come to Europe and come back punk rock. So he got back to Amarillo the same time I showed up and he heard about this punk rock chick. And so he sought me out and immediately like called me up that night. And we became like best friends that day. And we were best friends for decades. Like he's a, yeah, he, he, we both live in Austin now. So I got very, very lucky in that I did have that one friend. Cause I just, I was, I was really suffering from depression, but I had suffered from depression from like my first recollection around age seven. I remember at age seven, suffering from really severe depression. And they didn't really, I don't think, recognize that very much in kids. You know, when you have a bunch of kids, too, it's you just don't have time for that. And also, as a kid, you know that if your parents aren't sympathetic to that, you hide it. I hid a lot of my depression as a kid, as much as I could. Um, and so once I was in um, high school in Amarillo, I did have this very small clique of friends. And, you know, every year, some I was only there two years, but every six months or something, some new punk kid would move to town. So we had like our tiny little group. And then I um, applied to UT in Austin. And so I moved to Austin at 17. Now, I've been drinking heavily um, uh, through high school, although I, I was also in the honor roll. I did really, really well in high school. I loved school. So thankfully, UT gave me a, basically a free ride. But by the time I got here, my, I, mean, I still didn't believe in myself, and it was such a huge school, and I just, uh, you know, I, I, I was convinced I wanted to be a writer and a screenwriter, and I was, I had no reason to think I was ever going to succeed at anything. That's how low my, my, my sort of self-confidence was. And so I immediately got in with the wrong crowd and started instead of, um, and there was a beautiful punk scene in Austin, but I started hanging out with the meth addicts. <laughs> And um, I was just very drawn. They were very dark, and I felt very dark inside. I identified with them. And so I spent my first six months in Austin going to school a little bit and doing a lot, a lot of meth. And so I had this meth addiction that lasted from beginning to end, like six or eight months. It was really, really bad for like three months. But I, it, went, it took me down so fast. I spent all my scholarship and grant money on it. And I hit bottom and I almost got in a car accident and I'd been robbed blind. And at one point I actually got um, uh, mugged and beaten and, and abducted for a brief period by drug dealers. And so I got out just overnight. I got out and I quit. And so, and then, then I started stripping as a way to make back some money until, and even until I could get back into school. And in my mind, I thought, well, I'd overcome this really intense addiction all on my own. What I didn't really realize was that I was now working in a bar where I was able to drink for free every night. So what I really did was switch addictions. I mean, I was I already had a drinking problem. And so as soon as I quit the speed, um, even at 18, 19, I was able to drink in a strip club all I wanted um, for free. So I kind of doubled up on my drinking and my alcoholism really kicked in around that time. And then, um, but I still did go back to school. I was still, you know, really dedicated to trying to develop. My identity was finally kind of starting to take hold. But I think that those are really formative years where you are figuring out who you are, right? So I was finally starting to appreciate this side of me that, that was not appreciated at home. This quirky, rebellious, um, political, sexual, intellectual, um, uh, liberal uh, person that you know that 
my mom had kind of convinced me it was not acceptable, but that I was starting to believe, you know, and also my strip club customers were actually, you know, um, uh, encouraging me to be an express. I was just starting to feel like I knew who I was and where I was going. And, you know, I hate to say, unfortunately, I fell in love with Joe right then. But the truth is, I met them. I met my Prince Charming right at age 20 before my identity was so fully formed that, um, that it would stick. And here's this larger than life personality. who's also a coke addict and an alcoholic. He was 40 years old and he'd been, um, a function, highly functioning, but, but serious coke addict and alcoholic all his life. And so at this point I had this sort of maybe an unconscious choice a little bit. Like, am I going to be my own person and pursue my writing and try to have this relationship, but still really stand on my own? Or am I just going to like give up all my dreams of writing in school and just be a rock star's girlfriend? Is that going to be my new identity? And, you know, it was a lot easier to do the latter. And so I just gave up every vision and goal and dream I had for myself not overnight, but slowly over the first two, three years of our relationship and just became the shadow. So that in the end, when it was all over, instantly I ceased to exist because I had not been developing myself at all. I, I had just been Joe Walsh's girlfriend for six or seven years. And, and, um, and that contributed to further to, to the worst of my addictions. The next two years were the really, really bad years when I spiraled. Um, so I think a lot of my book and a lot of my story is about identity and it's about autonomy and it's about self-determination. And I made a lot of choices that were, um, conscious and unconscious about, what I would accept, what kind of treatment I would accept, you know, what kind of life I was going to live, what I would give up to have that life. And I, um, I made a lot of choices that led me to a place where I just ceased to exist. And, uh, so a lot of my book is about that my dependency on substances, dependency on another person for your identity. It's a lot about dependency in a lot of different forms, I would yeah. say. Yeah. This makes you know, having read the book, this like really kind of pulls it together for me because I, because as I read it, as, as as you talk about the years with Joe, it's sort of like you're like vacillating back and forth. Like you'd end up like having a really bad blowout with him, or he would hit the road, and then you would kind of wonder about maybe I should go back to school, maybe I should do this. And then as the years went on, it's and I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth if I interpret it correctly, but it's almost like that gets eroded away over time. And then you end up in the throes of complete addiction. But what's interesting about what you just said is it really paints the picture. It makes so much more sense. Like when you go back to how it all started, like who you were as a kid. So you suffered from depression at a very young age. And it sounds like you probably just blended in with the other kids and weren't high maintenance. So you maybe even went unnoticed for so long. And then here you discover this magical drink with this doctor that you're babysitting it also gives you something that you didn't have and you become really identified with it and then just as you spoke now Casey it's almost like like when you said like my identity wasn't completely formed you begin on the process of kind of finding your tribe and figuring it out but then this booze is escalating 
and the, and the addictions escalating. But, but you know, oftentimes we kind of look at it always like addiction is bad, right? You know, it's a horrible thing. But I think there's upsides to it, meaning that it loosened you up enough to discover this certain part of you. It's unfortunate you got addicted. Um, but I think, like, it sort of, like, opened up a new world for you. Unfortunately, it led to addiction. But there's this – what I'm noticing in these stories is, like, there's these little – small just like these slivers of positive that the addiction actually gives you and you connect with it but then it goes overboard so it's almost like if we could temper yeah. it back and then allow you down the process of figuring out who you are maybe it turns out different i'm not sure um but i was like kind of drawn to that part of your story just now and then the part about also about then becoming you know, a stripper in a club is that sort of like fits a little bit. Like you're trying to be more open that you're getting this attention. You're not fully, yeah. your identity's not fully developed. So there'd probably be a draw in there. And then you're getting the free booze. It like, like, as you talked about it, it really made like total sense to me. It's like, well, that would be the natural progression where somebody yeah. from the outside would step in and be saying like, well, how did you become an exotic dancer? I don't get it. <laughs> but as you explain it, it actually is almost like you're mixing it up with, you know, the meth addiction, you're mixing it up with the drug dealers, kind of like the dark side of life. And then this sort of is like a way to make money. You get attention, you get free booze. It actually, as you explained it, makes perfect sense of why you opted for that route. Yeah. It actually does, and I'm really glad you brought that up, because here's the thing about, um, the, let's say, the sex industry, but for me specifically stripping. You know, I've, I've done it in three iterations for a total of 14 years over my lifetime. You know, I, I, quit, I retired for good, at, it, it, actually in my 40s. So I stripped um, in three spurts from 18 to 42, and I, um, I worked in ways that were unhealthy and I worked in ways where it was liberating and healing in ways most people won't understand. But for one thing, um, stripping has saved me numerous times financially. You know, there were, uh, there were times where I had no help and I was um, working my tail off and I did not know where my rent was coming from, or I had, you know, one of the many, um, uh, addictions, I, I guess we'll call it, I've, I've had in my life was I had a, I had um, a bad relationship with money. When I got sober, I had, a, I developed an eating disorder. I, I was a workaholic and I developed a spending issue. And so I ended up in debt uh, three times in my life, heavily in debt and stripping always saved me. But when I first started, when, you know, I had a neighbor who was a med student and he was really, he was like a big brother to me. This was um, when I first quit meth, he was so happy for me because he was very worried about me. And he was a real, real sweet guy, um, uh, just a, a pre-med student, and, he, and I told him, I can't seem to get a waitressing job anywhere, my rent's overdue, and he says, what, not that I think this is a great idea or whatever, but there's a gentleman, what's called the Gentleman's Club not far from here, and I've been in it, and it, it seems like they treat the girls nice, and you can make quick cash and maybe get on your feet, whatever, and my first thought was, that's the most terrifying thing I can think of, right? Like, I was so sort of insecure um, and not comfortable even really with nudity. I was a very sexual person who had a lot of inhibitions, and that's, 
half the reason I did it. Half the reason was I needed the money, and the other half was because I was so afraid of it and so intrigued by it. I thought, I have to do this just so I can get over my fear and experience it. And I really pictured it being some seedy place where the girls were miserable and the guys were pervy. And I walked through those doors that first day, and what I saw was a ton of people having a fantastic time. You know, back then, too, customers were not allowed to touch you in any, you know, they could touch your shoulder maybe, but nobody touched you when you were dancing. It was very, um, and they kept a really, really close eye on it, you know. Um, so it was a bunch of guys spending a lot of money, a bunch of girls having a great time, and more than anything, this sense that sexuality was celebrated versus demonized. And so for me, that was very healing because I came from an environment where sex wasn't talked about, arousal was shameful. I mean, nobody came right out and said that, but it was something you saved for marriage, and you were there was something very sinful and wrong and maybe evil and maybe the devil's in you if you are having sexual thoughts in your teens and you know I knew that there was something wrong with that way of thinking and I fought it it was one of the only things in my youth that I just took a stand against um but secretly because I knew until I got out of the house you know my my parents were very very strict in that regard and, and they were very very catholic and I went to Catholic schools, and so I kept it on the down low. But I sensed that there was something about sexuality that was very beautiful and God-given, and I wasn't going to let anyone take it from me or screw it up for me. I just had yet to find a place where there was a group of people feeling this and thinking the same way. I'm not saying strip clubs are the healthiest type of sexual expression ever, but on an individual basis, I was allowed to express my sexuality and be applauded for it and not um, abused or taken advantage of. Because back then, like I said, the clubs were really safe. And I had a million bouncers and management looking over my shoulder. And the customers were – it was good, clean fun, to be quite honest. So I was making money. I was um, independent financially. I was, um, and also you talk to the customers. I was being told that I was funny and intelligent. I was getting the kind of positive reinforcement I hadn't gotten at home or even in my punk scene, you know. Um, so for me, it was a really positive feeling experience. Late in my later years, you know, when, when a lot of the rules and boundaries started going out the window, like in Vegas in the 90s and Every dance was like a negotiation, was like, you know, like a wrestling match. They were, you know, uh, uh, it was a full contact sport all of a sudden. <laughs> Those were not the healthiest years. Interesting. So, so this kind of sets the stage then. So there's this piece of you're feeling liberated. Obviously, you've kind of switched from you know, alcohol addiction kicked up. Then you got into meth and then you went back to, was it alcohol? And so now yeah. you're, you're in the clubs, you're stripping, and you're still thinking about going, you're, are you back at school? Yes, I had just started, I decided not to go back to UT. It was just so overwhelming. Like my classes had 200, 400 people in them. So I decided to go back to um, a community college here in town. And I started getting straight A's again and really loving it. And, you know, there's 40 people in the class. And I'm, you know, just because I love school. I, like, to this day, nothing makes me higher. This is how I get high now is learning. 
Yeah. You know, reading and learning and, and on the internet, just any topic I'm interested in. So, um, you know, I still had a, quite the drinking problem, but I loved school so much that my first semester back, um, I was finding some kind of a balance. You know, I wasn't taking a full slate of classes. I was taking two or three classes a semester, whatever. And then that's when I met Joe was right before that first semester back at school at the community college, um, right before it ended, like a month or so before I finished that. And then, um, uh, we started dating that summer, which was 1988. And then I went back to school in the fall, but that's when our relationship really took off and he invited me to Japan and Australia and New Zealand. And so I dropped out of school once already for, because of the math dropped out a second time because I was traveling overseas with Joe. And then, um, when I moved in with him a few years later, I started going to Pasadena city college, but I, um, because I was no longer working and I was around Coke 24 seven, you know, when Joe and I lived in separate States, we were together like two or three weeks out of the month, but I'd always go home for a week or two a month to dry out, um, and get away from the Coke, you know, and just drink. Once I moved in with him, it was just cocaine central. And I, and I didn't last at Pasadena city. I dropped out a third time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Again, my choice. You know, that was my choice. And Joe saw it coming, but he was in love with me and he didn't know what to do. Like, I think one of the messages in my book is a lot about these choices I made that at the time I I thought were inevitable. I have no choice. I probably even wrote that in the book. Like, I, what choice did I have but to drop out of school? I had to go to Japan with him. What choice did I have but to start, start doing coke? Uh, he stayed up all night. I would sleep, you know, uh, if I wanted to see him at all, I had a lot of rationalizations for doing what I did. And, um, and a lot of times I refused to make a choice about anything at all. I would just let life lead me around by the nose. Um, uh, you know, and I, so a lot of the independence and that liberation that I was experiencing from 18, 19, 20, um, slowly, bit by bit, I, I just let go of my, you know, consciously or unconsciously throughout that relationship. And I think it's something that you don't have to be married to or living with a rock star to see your, to, to lose your identity, whether it's to your partner or maybe even as a mom, you know, I'm not a mom, so I can't speak to that, but I certainly have heard moms talk about that. I mean, it's, it's easy for, and it's men too, but I think even for women, it's, it's easier to slip into that. It's easier to lose your identity to your partner or your, um, your marriage, especially if your partner is a strong personality or, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. I, I think you raise a great point there. The idea of like translating like your life, which people would say like, well, how does that relate to, you know, the average person in a relationship or in a long-term marriage or they have kids and, more times than not, maybe the wife losing track of who she is to take care of the kids, the husband's pursuing the career, the classic like layout there. And then she looks at like 10 years later saying, all right, well, now what do I do? Yeah. Who am I at this point? So, yeah. so it's interesting. So it's almost like as I, as, as you're talking, Casey, it's, there's so much like common connection in your life, meaning like, like you want to be liberated, 
you know, probably in your mind in, in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously sexually, et cetera. But then you're meeting Joe when you're 20. So you're looking, he's like 40 or whatever. So he's like a man of the world experience. But yet 20, you're 20 years old. You've already lived like three lives already. Like, like you're, it's not like, like you're an innocent, like, you know, like I'm totally in awe of the world. You're like, um, you've already seen a good part of life. And it's almost as if Joe and where he was at almost was like a good fit for you initially. Yeah. Yeah. I do think um, also Joe and I were definitely, you know, if it weren't for our addictions, who knows? We might actually still be together. I, I mean, I, who's to say? But I don't think a successful relationship necessarily is one that lasts forever. We would have had a more successful relationship if it weren't for our addictions. But we were very much in love. We were we, we were very, very compatible in a lot of ways, despite the age difference. You know, he always said I was the oldest 20-year-old he'd ever met. And I always said he was, the you know, the most youthful 40-year-old. Anyone who knew him would have said he was the most. He had a lot of real childlike wonderment and you know um uh he was which was which was part of the attraction you know um he liked that i was sort of motivated that i was in school that i had you know overcome an addiction that i was kind of a tough chick you know that i'd been around and he and he uh he required that like he really always needed a woman like a strong woman at his side um so we were really compatible in in those ways and i um, yeah, I was older than my years in a lot of ways. I'd been through some stuff, um, I, but we didn't understand addiction, I think, then the way we do now, or certainly it wasn't as public. You know, there was no internet. It's not like you could research it on your own. So our lifestyle was so glamorous. Like, I was clearly a meth addict because, um, I mean, I sort of had that classic running around with a bunch of, you know, homeless punk rockers who were ripping me off and beating me up and, and I, you know, lost every penny. So when I'm with Joe and I'm doing all kinds of coke and, and really completely addicted to it, we had a very glamorous life. We're doing it in limos and um, we're doing it with Jack Nicholson and, um, you know, we're doing it with some of the biggest stars in the world. So it was really easy to convince myself I wasn't a, a, an actual addict. And then every now and then I'd be able to go without it. Um, you know, I mean, and then that I thought an addict had to do it every day and they were almost on the street. And, you know, obviously we know that now that that's not the truth of it. Um, but it was another rationalization in my head, too. You know, yeah. That, the, um, did Joe end up going to rehab? Did he go to rehab? He did. Early on? Or he something? went to he did. He went to rehab while we were together. He went to, to Hazelden. And I, at that point, I knew that, that, that Coke was a problem for me. I wouldn't have called myself an addict. And, I, and maybe I was. I was an alcoholic for sure. But I, I don't know if you would have called me a Coke. I, I, knew, I thought I could have quit. If he quit, I would quit. But I didn't see us staying together if I quit and he didn't. And I didn't see myself being able to quit if he didn't because it was always around us. Everyone yeah. around us did it. So, um his road manager um, and somebody else close to him convinced him to go to rehab. He lasted about a week. Um, this would have been like a 92 or something, I think. No, no, 89, maybe 89. And, uh, yeah, so he lasted a week. He left early and then um, stayed sober for a day or two. But as soon as we got back to L.A., because he went to Hazelden, as soon as we got back to L.A., you know, you're in that same environment with all your friends, and it's just automatic. 
And so we started using it again. And then um, as our story goes on, we split up a couple of times. The first time was in 93, and I moved to Las Vegas. And for the next six months, I only saw him a few times. I knew as soon as I got into Vegas that I had made a mistake, that I wanted him back. So I would go down to L.A. every couple of months and see him. And he, those six months, he was, he'd gone off the deep end. He looked worse than I'd ever seen him. And the third time I went to see him was in February of 94. And I was telling him, look, I've got my drinking, I quit Coke, I've got my drinking under control. The second thing was, that second part was a lie. I, I had quit Coke because I didn't have his money to pay for it anymore. But I, my drinking was not under well, control. That's what, but, but that's what everybody said. You, you have to almost go through that stage where you're like, I can control this. There's like, yeah. I've never met somebody who hasn't gone through that stage. So Yeah, right? Yeah, like it'll, it'll happen. Yeah. So, so I... I sort of convinced him, and he's, he's, he'd been up for days, you know, it was very clear. He was, I just sort of berated him into getting back together that night. You know, I knew how to say the right things and, you know, we hit him in his soft spots and he sort of reluctantly agreed that, yeah, we'll give it another shot. And literally within minutes, um, he had what amounted to a phone intervention from the Eagles, from the guys in the Eagles, who started calling that night, minutes after we had officially gotten back together. And by the way, there's a pile of Coke on the coffee table. It's the highest Mount Everest. And uh, Joe's on the phone, and off the phone, and he's getting madder and madder and hanging up, and it's somebody else. It's, it's one Eagle after another, and then the, their manager calling. And finally, I'm like, why are what? who's calling and why are you so upset? And he goes, they're getting the Eagles back together, but only if I go to rehab. And he was furious. And I was laughing because I, I, I thought this was going to be our big night. We were going to make love on that, whatever. And now he's packing to go to rehab. I was oh. very mad. A little, I was a little frustrated with the Eagles. I thought their timing was off, but you know, I was kind of happy. I said, you're going to go, right? And he, he needed the money, and um, he's like, yeah, I'm not an idiot. But, but then he said, when when that tour is over, I'm going to go to rehab, and then I'm going to go on tour with the Eagles. And when it's over, you and I are going to have the biggest party this town's ever seen. <laughs> but he went to rehab, and it took – he stayed sober. He's been sober ever since, as far as I know. And um, that's when we finally started drifting apart for good because – even though I wasn't doing coke anymore, I was still drinking and I couldn't control it. And as he got more and more sober, my drinking got worse and worse. And for a full year, we just drifted apart until finally one day, you know, he just had to say, officially it's over. And that's when I decided I'm going to kill myself because I've no, I, I've no reason to live. I'm nothing without him. And, um, I've never done anything. I've failed at every, I really have made such a mess in my life that that's, so the, I, um, and you know, poor Joe, he felt terrible, but there wasn't really a lot he could do. I mean, I was really, his story is so fantastic because those guys, I think the guys in the Eagles, they're a lot like brothers, you know, there's a lot of fighting, but they love each other and, and they came together to help save his life and get him sober. And overnight he became a huge success again. And, um, I wish he would write a memoir, to be honest. I think, that, I think it would, it's a fascinating story. But I spent the next two years trying to drink myself to death. and almost did it. So how many years So, so how many years were you together and then he goes to rehab at the Eagles urging? We had been together for five years. So engaged you're like 20, for, yeah, so you're like 25 then? 
Right. Yeah. We had gotten engaged um, when I was 24. And then uh, we never set a date or anything. Things got really bad shortly after we got engaged. And so we, we split up after five years and I moved away. We got back together six months later for like a year, but it was, you know, it was, it wasn't what you would call a relationship. It was, it was a farce that last year. So we were together for a six year period, technically out of um, six years out of a seven year period. The, the final end, he ended it finally in, um, in 95. Okay. And so he's been sober ever since. I believe, yeah. I mean, it, 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 he may have relapsed or slipped briefly, but I don't. I say that only because um, we're not in constant contact. Um, but I believe he's been sober ever since. I mean, he's never had any relapse of any length that I know of, or, or possibly anyone at all. No. Oh, so so he, but he had been using for many many years. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, he was a child of the sixties. Yeah. So he was he was becoming successful by. I think, you know, he had abandoned high school, I think, but, but he, he had the James gang, like when he was what, 20 ish or so. So late sixties. And, um, so he was, uh, making a great living and, and doing really well. He's a, you know, he's a freakish talent. And so he's always had that, um, what I've always wanted, which is, um, uh, to be productive, to, to, to to use your gifts, uh, whatever they are, to make something of your life. I mean, that's one thing Joe's never not had. He's always known his purpose in this world, you know, to play music and to do it really well. And I always wanted to be a writer, and it wasn't – it took getting sober and then another number of years for me to really commit to sitting down and, and, and writing crap, if it was going to be crap, you know. Um, but – for me, that's a big part of my sobriety is, is having, is knowing what my purpose is in this world and applying myself to it on a daily basis. And writing is one of them. You know, I also work as an intimacy coach and I, I believe that that's, um, that's what gets me out of bed every morning. That's what keeps me from being depressed. I mean, I haven't been depressed. I had clinical depression. It came back. Well, never really left. But when I got sober, you know, I had to live with it. I couldn't numb it anymore. Um, and I even got an antidepressants for a while. But then I had to get off because I lost my insurance. And I just, yeah, I was working hard, but I didn't have the money for it. And um, I was one of the lucky few people I know that managed to get off of them. And I, I fell in love around that time. And I think that had something to do with it um, in 2010 or 2007. Um, but I've been completely free of depression since 2007. And I'm not, and I haven't even had to use antidepressants since then. Okay. And in part of that is because I've been writing and I've been working um, in, the, in the fields of my choice. I've been expressing my authentic self since then. So that's really helped. Um, that's incredible. Yeah. What an incredible journey. Um, so what it so I'm not I haven't reached the the end of the book yet. So we can do a spoiler a little bit, but I'm always curious about like so the last couple of years, so I get like his addiction progressed to big levels. You you know you you kind of both progressed together. What was interesting though in reading the book is that sort of he like kind of almost seemed to watch out for you in the beginning. And it seemed like he was the one with the bigger addiction. And then it almost like it seemed like it flipped up. I don't know if it seemed like that. And also, like you were always looking for acceptance among the like the rock elite and all that kind of stuff. And it's almost like years later, it's almost like flip flop where he's like wanting to stay in a relationship with you. 
And then you're like the one almost like running the drug show on some level. So I thought it was a kind of an interesting, I don't know if it felt like that, but it's almost like you switched roles. I don't know if that's true though. No, we really kind of did. I mean, it's funny because, um, and maybe that's something to do with being female. I think um, uh, uh, we tend to go downhill faster. I don't know. It's just, or it's certainly the nature of my addiction. I, mean, I was somebody who had, who's, who's, um, whether I was official addict or not in my teens, I had, you know, some serious issues with substance use disorder. And I, um, I, I wasn't ever a, someone who moderated ever. You know, I, I, I never was a normal drinker or a normal drug user. And, but when I met Joe, I wasn't using hard drugs. I was only using a little acid, a little mushrooms here and there, a little ecstasy, like party drugs, you know, and, and then drinking. Um, so, and he was known for, he was kind of infamous for his drug use, right? You know, his, his high functioning drug use. It was not, it was hardly a secret. Within a few years, right around the time I moved in with him, by the end of that year, I moved in within three years in, and within six months, I was out doing him on a regular basis. And, and that's a scary thought. Like, I really... It, it, I, it just ran away with me completely. And then I started, you know, I blew a hole in my septum because I'm just, and I even remember when it happened, you know, I was, we were doing the same Coke, um, but I could feel it happening. I could feel my septum um, dissolving almost. And so it scared me not enough to quit, but enough to start using it a different way. So then I start smoking crack thinking, well, at least I won't, you know, my nose won't collapse because what's left of my septum is barely holding it up. And so I started smoking crack, but, but, you know, that just took me further down at a faster rate. And so at this point, Joe was the same one among us, you know, and, you know, when it came to the breakups too, it was, you know, one day he was begging me not to leave and I can't live without you. And, and, and I'm like, I don't even know if I love this guy anymore. And then the next day I'm like, I can't live without you. I'm nothing without you. And, and he can't stand to look at me. And yeah, it was a lot of back and forth. It was very dysfunctional. Yeah. We had no relationship skills at all. So do you think like, I almost think about that, this, kind of idea of like when people are addicted together and what actually happens in that relationship. Cause I know you, you two aren't the first ones to have this kind of like drama in between yourselves. And I don't know if you've ever met other people just in terms of as, as you were going through addiction and then eventually got into recovery. If you notice other couples kind of struggling with that same thing when they meet and then they sort of get addicted together and then they, can't live without each other and they kind of flip-flop roles and any insight on that you know i, I tell you um, i've seen couples who were addicted together and were as bad or worse than joe and i like joe and i even got physical with each other like one time he completely lost it on me and one time i lost it on him i mean we didn't send each other to the hospital but when you're that hardcore of an addict um you can get violent even if you're not a violent person you know you're somebody else but I've seen people who are even worse off than we were, like Barb and Ringo, for example. Barb and Ringo are this amazing couple that were sober when I met them. But um, when Barb sat me down one day, she was trying to help me, trying to help me see what was going wrong in my relationship with Joe. And I was just blind to it. But she was telling me stories about how bad things had gotten between her and Ringo. But they... Maybe it was because of their celebrity or money, but they, and I don't know if I got sober in the same rehab, whatever, but 
they both were able to go to rehab and then keep their relationship together as a sober couple supporting each other you know I mean I'm not an addiction um uh or a recovery uh counselor or expert in that way but I have always felt like when when had Joe and I had I gone to rehab at the time that Joe first did or maybe the the second time he did you know we might have had a shot at making it work because there was a lot of love there but there are a lot of people there were a lot of people in Joe's life whose livelihood depended on him his best friends all were on his payroll so everybody needed him to get sober you know partly for their own benefit mostly because they loved him but partly for their own benefit I didn't have anyone in my corner everyone just kind of thought well you know I was expendable nobody tried to help get me into rehab um, and I had no money and I was completely detached from my family um, so I think that I, I, I've always really hesitated and worried, like, especially when I would be in meeting rooms, because AA was, I got sober through AA, and I, I would see people just making up rules, like, um, you know, uh, you don't date your first year, which maybe that's good advice, but that's not one of the steps. And if you're in a relationship, um, and you're both hopefully trying to get sober, there's every reason to you think you can make you know some couples can make that work um I was no more toxic for Joe than Joe was toxic for me and it always seemed to me like um it would have been helpful if somebody had tried to help get me into rehab my parents couldn't afford it I couldn't afford it um I had no health insurance or anything like that so um even if we hadn't lasted even if we hadn't lasted as a couple it could have saved me two years of a lot of heartache and physical pain. You know, I spent two years trying to kill myself, and I did permanent damage to my body that I still live with 23 years later. It would have been nice to have been saved those two years. It yeah. would have been, but, you know, um, yeah. well, I think there's a, there's a lot more rehabs out there than there were now than there were back then. So so this kind of brings us to the point where, so you so you spiraled down over the last couple of years and do you have like the proverbial rock bottom moment? Do you have like a moment of insight? What, what shifts for you? Yeah, I really did. I, you know, that whole time, those two years from the day Joe said it was over, he was, it was over the phone and he felt so bad for, you know, the pain he knew I was in. He, he jumped on a plane and flew up to Vegas to see me one last time and say goodbye in person. So we spent the day together and then he got in a cab and drove off. And as the cab was driving off, I just started to panic. Like a real panic welled up in me that I don't know how to explain it. I, I write about it in the book, but there was a part of my brain that just felt that I was about to have a complete and utter meltdown. And in order to save myself, it threw out the one solution I think that it could come up with, which was, well, just drink yourself to death and then you don't have to. I was completely incapable of living life, on, of, of, of managing my life. I was barely getting by. I was probably going to be homeless very soon um, at the rate I was going. And so this voice in my head said, well, just drink yourself to death. That'll be your solution. And it, it made it, it was the only thing I could think of. And I thought, all right, that works. 
So I decided before I'd even gone back in the house, I was still watching him drive away. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I gave it two years. I don't think I'll be at the rate I'm going, I'll be dead in two years. And that gave me a sense of peace. That gave me enough peace to, to keep walking and go inside the house. And that's what I did every day for 22 months. I woke up with the singular goal, which was to drink as much as I could to, to kill myself. And so I got sicker and sicker and sicker. I was in another hospital. Um, I, uh, uh, I was bloated and yellow. I mean, I was a mess. People looked at me. I found out later, um, the 7-Eleven I used to go to, they they just were waiting for me to die. Because when I got sober and, and didn't go in for a month and then I showed back up, they literally gasped. And I said, what? And they said, we thought you were dead because you looked so bad, like people on the street. And I, so I think that I probably didn't have very much longer to live. And then one day I woke up with such severe alcohol poisoning, I couldn't speak, I couldn't move. All I could do was roll over and just vomit. Um, I think I counted 13 times that morning. Of, it was just bile. Um, and I, I, I refused. I, was, I woke up at a friend's house, and they had to go to work or they would get fired. And I, I could, he tried to get me to go to the hospital, and I, all I could do was shake my head. And so he left. And I laid there thinking, I, this is the day I'm going to die. I couldn't speak. I could barely move, but I could think. My my it was, I had my my um, cognitive abilities were perfectly clear. And as I just waited for it to happen, my first question to myself was, "Why am I not more excited about this? This seems like this is what I've been after for two straight years, and I'm about to get it. Why am I not? I wasn't upset, but I wasn't excited. And then that's when the veil started lifting. That's when all these little denials that I'd been under started to you know dissipate. And I just realized this is not how I'm meant to go. This is not, I, I was lucky in another way. I, I was lucky in so many ways. Here's another way. I never didn't believe in some kind of higher power. I never didn't believe that there was some purpose to my life. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what God meant or, you know, it wasn't the God I had been taught, you know, the angry bearded guy in the sky, but there was something. And I thought, this is cheating. I was given life as a gift. I was meant to do something with it, and I'm cheating. And there's probably such a thing as reincarnation. I'm just going to have to come back with all the same problems and go through high school again. And that that was really kind of the clincher for me. I, I, I just thought, I have to give it one more try. And it took all morning long. It was like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So I've been, I've, I've been just pondering this for like five hours. My, I've been able to t test my heart rate because there was a second-hand clock on the wall, and my heart rate had been over 200 beats per minute for um, ever since I'd, I'd come to that morning. And right after I made that decision, I'm going to call that girl I know from work who's always saying I could go to an AA meeting with her. I'm going to let her take me to a meeting. I'm just going to do everything I can to try to get sober, and if it doesn't work, then I'll kill myself with a clear conscience. But I'm going to give it everything I got because I— that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's right after that is when my heart rate went up, dropped under 200 and I knew I was going to live. And I called her. I called her. I couldn't speak that day. I, I called her the next day and she was out of town, but she told me how to get to a meeting. And it took a couple days because I was so sick I couldn't walk. And um, But that that was the day. And I really did think I was going to go do this AA thing and prove it didn't work and drink, drink myself to death with a clear conscience. It's just that it worked. So... So you never went to any formal, like, residential thing, or you just went to AA and figured it out? Yeah. 
Yeah, I was $20,000 in debt, I think, at the time. And I, um, my parents, I, I didn't, I think that had I gone to someone, I kind of cut my parents off, but had I gone to them and said, I want to go to rehab, they might have found some family or friends or something. They might have come up with the money or something. I don't know. But, um, but I just couldn't ask that of them because I had cut them off. And I just didn't think, you know, I didn't think. So I didn't go. And I, the thing is, the detox that I did at my friend's place, I mean, it was pretty risky. I, the odds were really like two, two to one that I would live. I mean, I, the odds when you're that sick yeah. are about two to one. I'm not going to die. Yeah. But I was also 29 years old and I have a ridiculous, I'm lucky in another way. I have a ridiculously strong constitution. Um, I've had doctors tell me there's no reason I should be alive when I tell them how much I used to drink and use. And they said that a normal person would be dead by now. So I'm very lucky in that way. And by the end of the week, you know, I was still really puffy um, because my, you know, my, none of, I had five organs that were just not working, functioning well at all. Um, but I was able to go back to work about a week later. And here's another way I was very lucky. I was locked into the Las Vegas strip club scene where I was making money hand over fist. So I was able to pay back my debt. I had somewhere to go. I had one thing in this world I, I was good at, you know. Um, there were issues. Like I said, it wasn't the healthiest environment at the time. And I did end up quitting after a year and a half. But Vegas, here's another way I was lucky. Vegas is a fantastic place to get sober. I mean, um, they had A meetings around the clock. They had a really good group of women and women's meeting. I had an amazing sponsor who just taught me the steps out of the big book. You know, she didn't throw in a bunch of extra stuff. She was really, really good. And um, for me personally, um, the coping skills that those steps taught me were things I did not have. I didn't understand anything about honesty, um, uh, acceptance, restitution, um, I had no self-awareness about my, you know, what my fears and resentments were doing to me. I didn't know what to do with my fears and resentments. Um, uh, and you know, uh, everything from prayer meditation to eventually being of service, all of these principles and the skills that I learned through those steps are what got me sober and kept me sober. So for me, it, it really works. I never used to guns. Amazing. What an amazing journey. Casey, because I think about it's a very unorthodox way to get sober. Like you're basically puking up bile. You're ready to die. You could probably die from detox and nobody's there to help you other than like, hey, I'm going to go to an AA meeting. I survive. You go to the AA meeting, kind of get the ball rolling. And then you do something very unorthodox. Go back, go back. I mean, go to Vegas and be a stripper and that like strengthens your sobriety in some sort of way. It's, yeah. It's like, you yeah I'm, I'm glad you brought like, that up because I, like I, like I do want to say windy, this. Like, yeah, it's like this windy road. That yeah. it, everybody's different. So yeah, so you continue. I'm sorry for interrupting. Oh yeah, here's this thing. Like I years later, I had a sponsee who was the best sponsee I had. So dedicated. She was so she was so doing the deal right. But she um she had to go to court and she went in Austin, uh, just North of us is, is the second strictest County in like the nation, I believe, uh, Williamson County. And they were throwing the book at her. Now she was, um, stripping because she had two kids to feed. 
And uh, she had gotten sober, but was stripping because at the time it was all she could do to make money. And the DA was throwing the book at her, and I was her character witness. And they were saying she can't stay sober and in a strip club, can she? And I said, um, I did. My sponsor did. Literally dozens of strippers I know. There were more sober strippers in that in that Vegas strip club. Um, than any one job I've ever had. It was really kind of shocking. It was, um, but again, you know, I had financial freedom. I was able to pay back my debt. Um, I had a great support system there. On any given day, half the waitresses and a portion of the dancers would be sober, and we were there for each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, in that way, it was a really positive experience. And, um, I mean, it's not like I recommend for people to go do that, but it was also the only the only place I felt confident, so I really looked forward to going to work. I mean, I developed confidence in other areas, but... Um, you know, there's a lot of problems with the sex industry and the strip stripping industry. Um, but it saved my ass a number of times. It just did. Yeah. And also it was really weird. I told myself on day one, even my sponsor said, you know, I don't think you should be going back to work yet. First of all, you work in a bar. And I was like, well, so do you. She's like, I didn't come back after a week. Um, and I was like, look, I need money today. And I, I told myself, if I can't get through one eight-hour shift without a drink, I will quit today. I will do that. That will be what God's will is for me. And I worked eight hours, and it was like I had this bubble of protection. I kind of wanted a drink, but I didn't crave one. I felt like I had this crazy bubble of protection. And guys are drinking and offering me drinks. I can smell it on their breath. Didn't faze me. It was every minute I wasn't in the club because in Vegas, there's a pub on every street corner, you know? So it was like, if I'm like just driving home the one mile, I was like, I'll, you know, don't look at the pubs, you know, just, um, it was really weird. It was, it was a little bit of a miracle actually. So what makes you decide to get out of it then eventually stripping? I figured I was either going to, I was making a lot of money, but I figured I was either going to spend it all on um, an institution and therapy because it was making me crazy. Like I, um, I did not have, I had not developed the ability to set really firm boundaries yet. That took time. That took a lot of time and effort and trial and error and sobriety. And at a year or a year and a half, because I, I worked my first year and a half of sobriety in that strip club. And over that year and a half, you know, the bouncers were not keeping the guys off. It was just a constant battle. And so what would happen is you would you would figure how much how much grabbing and and um, boundary crossing can I handle for this thousand dollars a day I'm making? And you make a deal with yourself. But then I would go home and I would take like a, you know, Meryl Streep Silkwood shower and scrub, you know, and then I would curl up in a fetal position. I didn't have a therapist yet. You know, I got into therapy pretty soon after that. But I didn't have the boundaries it took to take care of myself in that environment. And I knew it. And I started putting on weight. And I think subconsciously, I was trying to push myself out of it. Yeah. Um, I feel like, yeah, I really feel like I was subconsciously putting on weight as a way to force myself out of the business. Cause I just, I didn't put on that much, but I was just uncomfortable stripping. And I, and I also thought, you know, I had a lot of shame over having wasted, I've been given every privilege in the book. I have a very healthy IQ. I have, um, supportive 
parents. I had a free ride at UT. I have skills and talents. I'm a white woman in America. I have a lot of privilege and I blew it all, right? Like I threw it away. I could be a senator by now and I threw it away. So I had a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. And I just thought I have to, even though stripping and that world is kind of a part of me, and it eventually led to the work that I do in sex therapy. Um, at the time, I was not working it well. And I thought, I need to get a mainstream life, a mainstream job, and sort of pay back society for the mess that I was on society's dime, really, for the last 15 years. So I felt like I needed to sort of do penance in a way. So I moved back to Austin, and I got into real estate. And the truth is, it was a good move in that it taught me how to be an accountable, responsible, dependable person with great negotiating skills, um, you know, who could show up on time and do the job. I learned all those things in my 30s that most people are learning in their 20s about being a good employee, being, you know, all that kind of thing. But I was miserable. Um, and then I went back to stripping at 39. Um, that's a whole other story. I'm actually writing about that. That's my, that's my next book. But um, I had to leave the sex industry entirely and go and learn how to be an adult with boundaries before I could return to it and do it again in a healthy way, briefly, in my late 30s and early 40s. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's not the, it's not the strip club industry that's such a problem. There, it's problematic. But we have a lot of young women in there who don't understand how to set boundaries and, and a lot of manipulative men managing them and a lot of businessmen with a lot of, you know, negotiating skills going in there uh and short you know just uh taking advantage of young inexperienced women so those are some of the issues but this um having a place we can go celebrate sexuality i think that in itself is a beautiful thing um so how do you know it's just time it's getting the right environment the right time and place getting the right mindset yeah so and i'm conscious of time i know we're running over here um, how did you work through, cause I, I think this is helpful for a lot of people in recovery is how did you work through, you know, the shame involved? Cause I think there's a grieving process that sometimes takes place in order to kind of come to terms with what has happened. Yes. And then sometimes, yeah. sometimes people can't, it's really difficult to come to terms with what happened. And that, that in essence doesn't allow them to move forward. Because they're always dragging yeah. that with them and setting themselves up. So what was your journey in terms of kind of working through some of that shame and kind of freeing yourself from it so you could live a life of sobriety? You know, it really took a long, I will say it took a long time and it takes what it takes. I guess um, I got into therapy as soon as I got back to Austin. I found a wonderful therapist who had a very, um, she's a dry New York academic type of woman, but she also had a real maternal side to her. And so I started to experience a little bit of a healing in that way. I finally had sort of a mother figure who was also a brilliant psychologist. Um, and I saw her for 17 years. Um, and so I started, I mean, and I needed every day of those 17 years. Um, I also, I, I really made an effort to learn about myself. I, that's when I started reading all kinds of books on psychology and spirituality and, and um, anything that would give me some insights into my issues. Um, I, it was a very long process. I slowly, 
I, I had to grieve the life that I had expected to have and wanted to have. And I had to, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in doing those inventories. And I, when it came time, when I did my first fourth step and I listed my resentment at everyone who'd ever hurt me, that was very gratifying. But my name wasn't on that list that first time. I'd not known to put it there. But there wasn't a single person in the world who ever did to me what I did to me. If anyone had, I'd have hunted them down and killed them with my bare hands. That's how, that's how much resentment I had toward myself that I was barely able to face. And so I had to kind of inventory it, talk about it with my therapist, forgive myself in a lot of little ways, surround myself with people who loved me with my flaws. I mean, I, I, I was very active in AA for about seven years and I had nothing in common with most of the people that I, that I went to AA except for the fact of recovery. And I found some great women's meetings and, you know, again, it was a whole process. I had to kind of start from scratch with this idea that I was worthy of forgiving myself and worthy of building a new life and that um, it could be as good or better than the one that I had blown. You know, it's hard when you're when you, your Prince Charming is a rock star and he's offering you the life of your dreams and you blow it. It, it takes a long time to <laughs> bounce back from that. But if I had known how great my life was going to be, you know, and people will tell you that in meetings, oh, if I had only known. I didn't really, for, it took a good 10 years before I started to really think, I was going to get where I wanted to go. And, and I, and, you know, miracles are happening still every day. I mean, my forties were my best decade. Yeah. But my thirties were a struggle. It took my, it took from 29 when I got sober to at least 39 of me really struggling and trying to put myself out there. My biggest problem next to the shame, probably, um, you know, my sponsor told me, you want self-esteem, do esteemable things. So I threw myself into working hard and working out hard. I ran marathons. I mean, in a way, I was like trying to sort of punish myself, but I was also trying to rebuild my self-esteem. And then I, and here's something that I advise. And, and when I say advise, it's not something you can just go out and do, but I wish you could fall in love. I fell in love. I, the most wonderful man fell in love with me when I was 10 years sober. And I think that that alone probably contributed about 33% to my healing. I think he, he, he fixed that part of my brain that was bro that Joe broke. Um, and you can't, I see people who have gone through hell, you know, whether it's abuse or addiction, you know, that have gone through something similar veterans that have gone through whatever, traumas that similar to mine and I know that I see their brokenness and I, I don't mean that disparagingly it's not a pejorative life can break you you can get fixed but you, you can't always do it alone and there isn't there aren't um ex easily accessible communities like AA for everybody with trauma and I for me I was getting better for 10 years, but when I fell in love at 39, it was like I, uh, I took a leap. Like I, like a, like the healing just, just took off like a shot. And I, it only lasted a year actually, but by the, but, but within a year I, I felt like, um, I, I, all that, all that 
10 years had finally brought me to a place where I was at peace with those 15 years of hell. Yeah. Was it almost, and like, I, you, you, yeah. yeah. I, I always think of like, was it almost as if the 10 years had actually in the work you've done had prepared you to fall in love in a much different kind of yeah. way? Yes. Yes. It prepared me for a healthy kind of love. I, and that's a lot about what my next book is about actually, because I had such fear of intimacy I couldn't even date. It was just a comedy of errors. And so every year or so through my 30s, you know, I put myself out there a little more and a little more. But, you know, and I see people as an intimacy coach, I see people going through that exact same thing. You know, you have to you have to open yourself up and be vulnerable and allow yourself to be rejected and hurt because rejection hurts and know you're going to be okay and pick yourself up and go try again. And people who who can't fall in love, who, who seem to block it, those are people who won't open themselves up and allow themselves to be vulnerable. The reason is because they've been hurt so badly. So my 30s were a process of me getting to a place little by little, dating men who were just a little bit more emotionally access- accessible than the last guy. You know, dating someone who's a little bit more healthier than the last guy, opening myself up and showing a little bit more of my true self to the next guy. But it was 10 years of that before I met someone that, um, uh, uh, and he, he was one of those guys who just, he believed in love. You know, he was going to shower me with it no matter how many times I got scared and ran away. So, um, people like me need a partner like him. You know, there's, if there's one person and I was more avoidant and he was just more, uh, uh, love and relationship were his priority. Whereas for me, um, it was what I feared. So, uh, I credit him a lot with that because, because if he hadn't been so unafraid of, of love, uh, it, we never would have worked out and I never would have benefited. Yeah. I think about this. Yeah. You, yeah, you raised such a great point. Um, this idea of vulnerability and connection, and how scary that is and how are you going to deal with the rejection so if you can kind of just close yourself off you might be safe but then you'll never get that connection yet if you put yourself out there you could get hurt and so how do you stay the course and I, I like your idea of like well I dated a guy that was a little bit more open and then I dated a guy who was a little bit more open than that guy and so it was kind of a yeah. gradual process, but I think the amazing thing that you did was you stayed with it and kept working on it, and you had support to yeah. keep working on yeah. it. Where I think back of when you hit your, you know, when you hit your rock bottom, it was almost like complete abandonment by everybody. You were kind of left to your own devices and kind of looking for like, hey, what is it? Why didn't somebody step in? And then you figured it out and figured out how to reach out for help how to move yourself forward. So I think that's amazing in itself, but I think the vulnerability thing for people, including myself, is always tough. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. Um, Brene Brown, is. It, she talks so wonderfully on that, the power of vulnerability. I think that's the name of her book or maybe her TED Talk. Yeah. Um, I had already done the work when I came across Brene Brown, but I'm reading her book and I was like, this is, this is the last 10 years of my life, everything she's explaining here. But yeah, it's like baby steps. Like you, you take as big a risk as you, as you can take, you know, and it takes courage. I think it's about having courage and just like, like I might, 
you know, maybe in my mid thirties, I was starting to date someone who wasn't, um, 100% emotionally available. Maybe he had some issues or whatever, but he was more, uh, um, more so than the guy before. And, and that means I have to step up a little and be a little bit more authentic myself and be a little more open with my feelings. I remember there was one really devastating relationship in my thirties and it was with a guy who was really open with his feelings. He was a closet alcoholic. So that's where the attraction, you know, like he wasn't a perfect guy emotionally. He had his issues, but he was very openly loving. Um, and I was still resistant and, we were together for a month and I was, if I had just opened up this much more, we probably would have had this great relationship, but I just pulled back at the last minute and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't tell him my true feelings because I was so afraid of getting hurt. And then within a week he was, he, there was another woman on the fringe and he, she was very open about how much she was ready for a relationship, you know, and here's me dancing around. And he, he had his choice between a woman who's open and a woman who was really hesitating to be, to, to express her feelings. Well, who's he going to go with? He went with that one. And that set me back for like a year or two. Okay. I was, I was traumatized by that for about a year or two. So it was a journey, right? Yeah. Um, but it taught me something too. The next time I met a guy who wanted me to be a little, who was a little more ready for love I stepped up you know I was like I'm not losing this one I'm not going through that again so what would you say to you know I was kind of thinking about this um what would you say to somebody who's thinking about getting in recovery or who maybe who has walked a similar path or parts of the path you've walked and let's say they're listening to the podcast now um what would you want to say to that person you know um the first thing that comes to mind is that Honestly, I would never have believed you if you had told me what a great life I could have someday. I would not, I, if I had tried to, to imagine what, what my best life could be, it wouldn't be this good. And I'm not saying I'm, you know, I'm not a rock star. I'm not living a rock star life, but I'm passionate about the work I do. I have an amazing circle of friends. I have a great relationship with both of my parents. Um, I have, um, look, I'm going to put this out there. Sex is so much better sober. If I, if you had told me that one thing that might have gotten me sober two years earlier, like seriously, it really, you, it, it's very awkward at first, but once you get past that part, it's much better. Um, and you're worth it. Like all those, all those people who either purposely or inadvertently or accidentally like my mother made you think you weren't worth it or that there's something wrong with the true you they're wrong it's all a lie it's bull and that part of you that thinks that you might have something to offer the world that's the truth that's what you need to listen to you know my father my father never knew how to protect me from my mother. But when he was with me, he made me feel cherished. And I do think that that played a factor in me when I was laying on what could have been my deathbed. I think that there was something about my father, the way he made me feel cherished as a baby. So anyone who's on that verge of should I get sober or not, you know, what they're doing is they're weighing the work it might take to, to get sober and find out, you know, they're not really worth it that 
that um, they're just as much of a screw up as they always believed against, you know, um, how much easier it is to live this really crappy life and, and just be stuck there forever. And the truth is those aren't your only options. There's a voice in your head and maybe a voice in your past that was telling you that you're an interesting, amazing person with something to offer the world. And that's the true voice. It's so easy to believe the ones that say, God, you know, you're just, you're an annoyance or you're stupid or you're not, you know, um, you're not who I want you to be. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm still not who my mother wants me to be. Trust me. I'm far from who she wanted me to be, but I don't care anymore. I love the person I am. It took me 52 years to get here, but I love her. Right. And I think that, yeah, I think that, that that holds a lot of people back. They don't have a lot of people telling them that you're, you know, you're an amazing person. I love being around you. Well, somebody told you that once and that's who you should believe. Excellent. Well said, Kristen. So any resources you might have for our listeners? Um, Things that they, maybe things that resonate with you. I know like 12 steps was big and I, I actually, I didn't get a chance to say this at the time, but um, sort of like you really latch on the 12 step of paying it forward in some way. Oh like, yeah. Like that Definitely. was a motivator. That was like a motivator and really kind of almost kept the evolution going of you. Yeah. I think um because my biggest issues in sobriety, um, aside from shame, although shame factors into um, fear of intimacy, um, working as an intimacy coach is incredibly rewarding. And I get the same almost buzz at the end of a session with an intimacy coaching client that I would get when I was sponsoring women and taking them through the steps. Like I'd take them through a step and then on my way home, I would just feel like sort of floaty and elated. Like I was a little high, like I had a cocktail. Um, and so so it's the same with my intimacy coaching. I firmly believe in that. I was going to do 11 and a half steps. You know, once I realized they were working, I was like, all right, I like these steps. This is great. I'm going to do 11 and a half. This whole being a service thing. I don't have time for that. I've got to be like that. Yeah. But the truth is that's, that's like the best part of my life. Um, and you know, I get paid for being an intimacy coach, but every now and then I take on the client for free client can't afford me, you know, paying it forward is really important. Um, I'm a big, I love for, if, if you, if vulnerability is an issue for you, Brene Brown has some great, her Ted talk is just amazing. And also I think for women in particular, this is a really important, for me, this was a life changing book. It's a book about um, uh, about uh, women uh, women's empowerment. I guess is a is a vague term, but it's a book called Women Don't Ask, and it's a little bit about learning how to step up and, and state your needs and, and go for what you want. Because we live in a world where it's like automatic that men men are assertive and aggressive and women aren't, and it has all kinds of statistics. It's a fascinating book. And I think for women in particular who are feel, feeling, um, there's a lot of learned helplessness in the world today. The millennials especially, I see a tremendous amount of learned helplessness. And that book, I think, is really great for women. Um, yeah, so that's a good resource there. Well, Casey, um, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and tell your uh, just amazing story. I think you're a beacon of hope for a lot of women, just people in recovery. Um, I would highly recommend checking out Rock Monster, uh, My Life with Joe Walsh. It's a great book. Um, it's it's captivating. It's well written. But I think 
I think it's really a beacon of hope in this kind of like people struggling with addiction and just in recovery as well, maintaining your recovery. Thank you so much. That means the world to me. I really appreciate it. I love your podcast so much. I mean, I've, I've really benefited from it and the, and the topics that you cover. Um, uh, I just recently re- uh, listened to the one on eating disorders, which I think is so important. So thank you so much for the work that you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Casey. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much to Kristen Casey for sharing her time with us today. You can pick up Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh, out now, published by Rare Bird Books. If you like today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode was produced by Ted Isidore and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.